Nad, my welcome to Sophie. It's so fantastic to see you all this morning. Um, really excited to be able to sing together, to share together. I'm excited to play some board games together later. This is a difficult topic this morning. When we were organising this series, uh, this was the one that certainly challenged me the most. I think as we sat down as a team and wrote down the topics that were important to discuss, this was the scariest. The reason I'm addressing it isn't because we're lumping it with the youngest or the newest member of our team, but because it's a topic that I think excites me and scares me. As I sat down, my own journey of grief, my own experience of suffering, meant that it's a topic I've seen done poorly, seen done really insensitively. People can talk about this in a way that doesn't connect with the God that I've known, that can cause more grief, can cause more hurt. But it's also a topic that excites me because I think for those reasons we often avoid it. It's a topic that we don't talk about, that we ignore. But it's a topic that I believe informs our biggest questions of the world. It's a topic that's of central importance. I've been considering why it's important, why I'm passionate about this as a topic this week. And a line that's been really big in my life over the last few years, so much so that I've got it written up on a whiteboard at home in block letters, is this line, our problem isn't goodness, our problem is life. It's a line I've been thinking a lot through. To state it another way, the problem that the Bible presents humanity as facing isn't badness, it's unlife or death. I'm going to use those terms interchangeably today, but I think sometimes we have a narrow view of death, which is simply the end of our existence. But I think when the Bible talks about unlife, it's talking about something much bigger. Mark shared last week his experience of sharing the gospel with his friends at the cricket club, those who weren't a part of church, those who didn't know much of God. And he shared that initially he wanted to just tell them the story that they were sinners who needed a God that saved them, but that that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. They're terms we use in church, but they're not terms that necessarily make sense to a watching world. I found it really special when he shared that it was when he, saved, when he shared that God is the one that conquered death, that came to save them, that people started to connect. I think being told that death is the problem we, we face is one that makes intuitive sense. That line, problem isn't, our problem isn't goodness, our problem is life, is one that reframes the Bible for me. I start looking through the lens of life and death rather than good and bad. But we don't do this simply because it's a simple message. It's an easier one to tell to the watching world. It's a reframing we do because it reveals a truth. From the outset, the Bible reminds us of mortality. Central to who we are is the reminder that we are from dust, that God created us from the dust of the earth. I think the author of Genesis does this intentionally to remind us of our frailty, of our fragility. A chapter later, in the curse of Genesis 3, we read in verse 19, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. We see unlife in many forms, in death and our physical decay, but also in sickness, in our tendency towards sin, in oppression, in greed. Death isn't simply a physical process, but a state of being. Unlife affects all of our relationships. It affects our relationships with each other, when sin gets in the way, when anger and frustration. It affects our relationship with God, 
I don't walk side by side with him in the garden as we were created to do. There's still always something between me and him. It affects our relationship with creation. We saw all earlier this year these awful bushfires. We hear about tragedies all the time. We recognise things aren't how they should be. And it affects our relationship with ourselves. There's moments of sickness, there's moments of pain, and we realise not everything is right. However, if we were to reframe death in this way into a much larger, expanded definition, then we need to do the same with truth, with, sorry, with life. Life, as we talk about it, isn't simply the biological description of existence. Life is seen in caring for others, having the Spirit help us fight our tendency towards sin. Life seen in our creativity, using power to serve others, generosity. Mark Ryan said a few months ago from Ecclesiastes, and he had this great line, that every interaction we have is an opportunity to bring more life to a situation. That's the sort of life that I think the Bible talks about. As helpful as viewing the Bible through the, these, this lens, this expanded definition of life and death is, I don't think it gets us away from the elephant in the room when we talk about this topic. If we name the ele- elephant, is that we're still subject to physical decay. Each of us subject to sickness. Each of us will one day die. Worldwide, the mortality rate stays stable around 100%. But these questions, these realities, aren't ones that we need to shy away from. They're ones that the Bible openly discusses. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, they're the questions that we and the watching world are most interested in. They're the questions that often frame our stories. I know in my story, these questions have framed things for the most. Some of you will know a lot of my story, some of you know bits of it, some of you will know none of my story. But I grew up in a Christian family, I had a faith from an early age. But when I was nine years old, I was playing around at home and my parents had gone out. I didn't know where they'd gone. I thought maybe it was a routine visit to the doctors. But as I was playing, they walked back in the door. My dad had sunglasses on. And he's not enough of a rock star to wear sunglasses inside. I knew something was up. And he called to me and asked me to go into the bedroom with him to have a chat. As he took his sunglasses off, I saw that his eyes were red. The way he talked, I knew that something was different. Something was wrong. I don't remember the words he said, but he told me my mum had been diagnosed with cancer. As a nine-year-old, I didn't really know what cancer was. But I could sense the gravity. One of the first questions I asked him was, is she going to die? It's a question that didn't have an easy answer. And over the coming years, I wrestled with God over that question and many others. Questions of fairness. How can God let this happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Is God even good? And as I watched my mum battle sickness over years, I saw her energy fade. The systems fail. I watched her body slowly deteriorate until it, and her, her health go downhill. Till a few weeks after my 13th birthday, she passed away after a four-year battle with cancer. And in that time, my questions only intensified. People tried to explain things to me. There were platitudes. She's in a better place. She's no longer suffering. She's with God now. I heard verses those of lament, those of praise. I heard theological explanations for the evil and fallen nature of our world. 
People through her journey wanted to pray for healing, even though early on she felt God was calling her home. If I'm being polite, occasionally some of these platitudes, verses, prayers and theological explanations were helpful. But if I'm being honest, they very, very rarely were and were often harmful. However, I've reflected on this experience for many years and I found that it was in sitting in the questions that I had that I didn't find many answers, but I found God. I found a Bible full of characters who battled through illness, battled with decay, battled with death. I found psalms of lament written by an author crying out from a broken heart, unashamedly asking their questions of God. As I gained the confidence to start sharing my story, sharing my grief, I found out that there was an unbelievable number of people surrounding me in church and outside of the church who were carrying the brokenness that unlife had brought to them. Ultimately, my own personal journey, the questions it brought up, this more recent reframing of the Bible I've had in terms of life and death has emphasized for me the central importance of mortality as a topic, that we should be talking openly and more regularly about death, sickness, and unlife. A practice I've found helpful in recent years has been the practice of Ash Wednesday. Growing up in the church, it was something I occasionally heard about, new bits and pieces of, but never really understood. And Ash Wednesday is a yearly tradition at the beginning of Lent, where people within a church will have dust placed on their forehead in the shape of a cross, reminding them that from dust they come, and to dust they will return. It's a church rhythm reminding us of our mortality. And this isn't something that someone's just invented out of the air. It's a recognition that coming from dust is a constant theme of the Bible. If I can just go through a couple of verses quickly. In Genesis 18, 27, Abraham says, I am nothing but dust and ashes. In Ecclesiastes 3.20, all go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Job 34, 12 to 15, it is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention, and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together, and mankind would return to the dust. This last verse I found particularly impactful this year. Psalm 103, 13 to 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. I find that verse in particular amazing. That our father looks down on us and recognizes our fragility, recognizes our frailty. And his response is one of compassion. I know many people share stories similar to mine. Many of us have experienced the hurt of unlife. And I think if we talk about the questions that come out of it, if we hear each other's stories, if we read the Bible seriously, it becomes undeniable that mortality is one of the most important topics in the Christian walk. I've brought up a few questions this morning. Questions I don't think we'll be able to answer. Questions that perhaps don't have a simple answer. But another question I think we can ponder, one I think we can start to say something about, is what is this season? What is this pandemic? 
exposed about our attitudes towards mortality. I know this is slightly abstract asking this in Adelaide, where we aren't facing our mortality in the same way the rest of the world is. I don't know if this is happening to you, but a lot of the time I look at the numbers coming out of the rest of the world and I just can't believe it. I can't put names to numbers. We're not facing that in the same way here. We're not even facing the lockdown that our neighbours across the border are. But I know when this pandemic first hit, I found myself fearful. I found questions of what should I do to keep myself safe? What would happen if a friend or a family member of mine got sick? What if they were facing their mortality? The fear that that brought up brought out some of the bad things we saw early on. That fear was seen in panic buying, in hoarding, in the anger and attitudes we have to those that have made mistakes in this season. What was exposed was an extreme fear of sickness and death that is both understandable and normal, but when intensified, brought out an ugly selfishness and self-preservation. Perhaps it's only because I'm in Adelaide that I can ponder the next question, but it's made me wonder, why isn't that the case all the time? Why isn't our selfishness and self-preservation on the surface all the time? Our bodies always have a tendency to decay. We're always subject to sickness and death. We give lip service to the fact that we it's guaranteed. And I wonder if the reason it's been intensified in this season is because in the old normal, we distracted ourselves away from ever recognising our own mortality. In the old normal, did we busy ourselves with consumption, with noise, with work? Did we busy ourselves in such a way that we never had to stop and recognise that we are mortal creatures? That we are beings who are subject to decay in all facets of our life? I saw a quote on Twitter this week. It wasn't necessarily in a Christian context, but I feel it applies perfectly to what we're trying to talk about in this series. The pandemic hasn't changed the things you can control. Those things are the same. We were just under the illusion that we controlled more. I wonder if our mortality is one of the things that we had an illusion of control over. Because we know that can't be true. The Bible tells us that each breath we have is one that has been gifted to us. In Genesis, as we are created out of dust, it is God's very own breath into the dusty being that brings life. In Luke 12, 25, as Jesus is concluding some teaching, he says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your own life? Did we fool ourselves into believing we could add a single hour? As we navigate a pandemic, as we navigate this odd season, are we finding our ultimate hope in a vaccine, in a therapeutic drug, in healthcare professionals? Is our ultimate hope in extending our biological life? I think we should find some hope in these things. But we're meant to recognise that at best these things are a broken reflection of the sort of life that God is on about, on that fuller, more expanded vision of life. Our hope shouldn't be in extending our biological lives to the nth degree. It should be in bringing life to all those we come across, to every situation we participate in, to make the most of every second that we've been gifted, to participate in the kingdom of earth as it is in heaven as we await the day we will one day eat of the tree of life, the day King Jesus will renew our bodies, renew our relationships, renew his creation, 
the day we should be continually crying out and longing for. We find hope in a God that conquered death, but paradoxically did so by enduring it. A challenge I've found in my own walk, as I've been sitting with this topic for the last week or so, is the more I ponder my own mortality, the more I'm drawn to both lament and praise. We talk a lot at Richmond about holding those things in tension. I don't think there's a logical explanation. But I know in my own experience that I've sat reflecting on mortality, those times when I've been forced to confront it, in my own story, in a pandemic, I cry out in lament, in sadness, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But I also begin to recognise life as a gift, that King Jesus is the one who defeats on life, on my behalf. And I'm also forced to cry out at the same time, may you have glory, Lord. In this series on the new normal, we've been hearing the stories of people within our community. And we've asked Pam today to come and share her reflections on mortality out of some recent experience. I'll ask her to come up now. For those of you who haven't met Pam, um, everyone that's been here any length of time will, but for those that are new or newish, Pam's been a part of our family here at Richmond for longer than any of us can remember. Someone we look up to for her incredible wisdom and love. And I must say, personally, once Pam said she was willing to share this morning, it took a lot of the pressure off me. I knew you were going to hear some wisdom and gold, no matter what I might say. So I'm just going to let Pam speak, share a bit of herself and her own reflections on mortality. Oh, thanks, Josh. As you say, it's a difficult subject, and I admire you for tackling it, so well done. I haven't thought much about my own mortality. You'd probably think I should have, because I've been blessed by having more than my three score years and ten. But, no, I haven't. I mean, I've tried to control it. I drive carefully. Someone say I drive like a granny. When I fly overseas, I always choose a reputable airline. Don't choose Garuda. And I've never in my life skied a black run, so I have tried to be very careful. Yes, I've made a will, which I hope you all have. And yes, when my husband died, I bought two little plots of land, and so my ashes will be placed next to his in the garden of the church where we were married. So apart from that, really, my mortality has just been an external reality. In other words, death was something that's going to happen sometime in the future, not my worry. Recently, I've... um, got a bit sick of all the pain I've had in my hip, especially at night. And so I asked to be referred to an orthopaedic specialist. And when I got to see him, he said, oh, something interesting has shown up on your x-ray. Oh, that sounds good, I said. What is it? He said, you've got a hole in your femur. Oh, well, what do we do now? What's the worst case scenario? So he said to me, well, worst case scenario, you've got uh, cancer of the bones and we will prepare a palliative program for you. Best case, you haven't got cancer and I'll go ahead and do a hip replacement and we'll just cut out that bit with the hole in it. Okay. So as I walked back to the car, it suddenly hit me. Palliative care is something that you do to keep people safe and happy before they die. That means I've got to face my mortality. 
And suddenly the words of that chorus came into my mind. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. And it must be a good 4-4 beat because it was good to get me back to the car with that ringing in my ears. And once I got back to the car, I just sat there and thought, well, Lord, I can't cope with this. I'm just handing it all over to you. And when I got home, I thought, wow, I'm probably going to have to wait for two weeks by the time I have this top-to-toe scan to see if there are any other nasties and then get the results. So what am I going to do with that two weeks? I know, I'll make a checklist. So first thing on my checklist, I'll plan my funeral. That seemed like a good start. When all this lockdown happened, my grandson said to me, now listen, Nans, all those stories of you and pups, you know what's going to happen. When you're gone, they'll all be gone, so I want you to write some of them down. Well, that took care of the first six weeks of the lockdown, and Michael's now got about 70 pages. He should be able to do a eulogy out of those 70 pages. And those of you who give me the honour of coming to my funeral, I want you to sing lustily when you sing Lord of the Dance. That to me is the hymn that just encapsulates the gospel because what a wonderful thing is it that Jesus invites us to participate in the dance of life and ministry. So that's a warning. This season may have thrown up losses and griefs for you and I'm not in any way trying to tell you how to grieve because we all grieve differently but I will just share my story. So after I'd planned my funeral, I was quite happy with all of that, I remembered that when my parents died I'd spent a lot of time cleaning out the house ready to sell it and I remember standing next to a rubbish tin sobbing as I threw all of their photo albums away. All of their photos, people I didn't know because they were people they'd met on various trips that they'd done. I felt as though I was throwing their life away again. And so I didn't want to leave that for my family. So I got out all 32 of my photo albums. (laughs) And if someone can teach me how to scan photos, I shall choose a few and keep a few and throw the rest out so my family doesn't have to cope with that. The next thing on my bookcases were more than 20 folders of my theological studies. Why do I keep these? I finished my Master of Arts in Christian Studies in 2008. Back in the day, we wrote notes with pen and paper and we photocopied chapters of books. And so I've got these folders full of all of this paper. And so I've sat down and started to reread them all. There was the Old Testament studies that I did with Renee's mother, church history, where Nathan's dad was my lecturer, and the Pentateuch with Melinda. And even in those days, she was a very creative lady and she got us all to make. A reminder of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Thank you, Melinda. still have it. As you've probably worked out, I am a hoarder. (laughs) I've still got all my reports for when I came to this school. I've got the the New Testament that Dad carried with him when he was away in World War II. Of course, I've got all the hymn sheets from our wedding and all the, the 
um, condolence cards from when my husband died. So it's a matter of going through all of those and sorting them out. I'm enjoying reading them all again, but I've had to realise that they do need to hit the recycle bins. If any of you know, any, if you or anybody can use any of those two or three ring folders and about 700 plastic inserts, then let me know afterwards, will you? I don't want them to go to landfill. But I had to realise that I was storing up my treasure here on Earth, looking back at past achievements, past trophies to remind me of the person I've been. And I had to realise that my treasure on Earth here is people, my family, my friends, you, my worshipping community, not the, not the reminders of past achievements. I don't have cancer of the bone, good news, so I will be having a hip replacement. But even if I did, we worship Jesus who says, do not be afraid. And from John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. told you you'd get some gold there. <laughs> I want to conclude by asking the question, considering, how do we not just reimagine a new normal? How do we not just look for a return to a normal? How do we create a way of being a people who bring life? How do we be a people who sit in the tradition of Ash Wednesday, sit in rhythms of considering our own mortality, not as a macabre moping, but as a reminder of whose we are and what we are called to. Recognising our mortality isn't the Christian carpe diem or YOLO, but it might not be too far off. It's a reminder that each moment is a gift, that nothing should be taken for granted, and that our hope isn't found in the things of this world, but in the things of the kingdom. When we recognise our mortality, we are led to lament. We're left to cry out to God. When we see sickness, when we see death, when we see unlife, we are supposed to have unease. We're supposed to feel discontent. We're supposed to recognise that things aren't how they are supposed to be. I think there's few things more harmful than pretending everything is good, that everyone is meant to have health, wealth and happiness in this life. But I wonder if sometimes when we distract ourselves away from our mortal nature, if we live in such a way that simply says being alive is everything. We've talked about life being biological life, but also a fuller understanding of life bringing. I think when we distinctly put them those ways, we suddenly recognise that we can be alive without ever bringing life to the world. My hope and my prayer is that we learn from what's been exposed that we don't shy away from the truth of our reality, of our nature. That we recognise that bringing life is something we need to do by listening to the Spirit, that will look different in every situation. It will look like lamenting with those who are suffering and grieving, dancing with those who are in great joy, crying out when we see the decaying nature of ourselves 
of each other, of the dust we walk in. As we reimagine a new normal, I have a sincere hope that the unlife of the world is not something we ignore, but something we recognise, that we then name, and then imaginatively wonder how we can bring life to that area. I mentioned before that in losing my mum, I had many questions. Questions that I still haven't received answers to. But there was one question that required an answer. In the weeks leading up to mum's passing, as we gathered in a hospice and sat around her bed and prayed and shared with one another and had phone calls and people contacting us, the nights that I spent alone crying out to God, questioning him, I felt these questions pile up. One question led to another, led to another. But there was one question that I recognised needed an answer. Wrestling with God over these things meant I was convinced of his existence. I'd spent so much time with him that I knew he was there. The question I landed on was, do I trust this God? Put sharply, the way I worded the question at the time was, do I want to be on the side of this God? They're confronting things to say in church. But choosing my answer to that question was really challenging. The more I sat with God in my challenges, my questions, my grief, my frustrations, my despair, the more I truly came to believe that he was good, that he is the one worthy of glory. He didn't magically make me feel better. Death and sickness hurt unbelievably. They do so because they're so disordered. They're so out of the way things are meant to be. We cry out. But we know we serve a God who cries out too. We have the opportunity to bring a fuller definition of life to every situation. And the Christian hope is found that any life that we can bring is simply a foretaste of the ultimate life we will participate in. For the Bible doesn't just finish at Jesus' resurrection, but in a promise that we can be on the side of the one who conquered death. That we too will participate in the resurrection. That one day we will be in the city that has the tree of life, given new bodies. Please hear me that the promise of the new heavens and the new earth isn't the one that we take to those who are suffering. Someone that's had multiple experiences of losing people, I can honestly say, heard it a lot, doesn't help in the moment. But when we create a new normal, I hope the central question is, how do we bring true life? How do we create pockets of the new city as we eagerly await its coming? I think central to doing this will be having rhythms of recognising our mortality, recognising that we are dust. We've covered a lot of confronting things today, things that for, will land differently for each of us, things that might stir up different emotions, might stir up grief or lament. There might be new or challenging language. One piece of advice I give to people who ask how to journey with their friends who are suffering is that in all my years journeying through these things, I can't remember the words anyone said, but I can remember presence. I can remember the people who shied away. So if things have stirred up for you today, please remember that this isn't something we journey in alone. It's one we journey with, with him, but also with each other. Please find someone today to talk to, whether it's someone that you feel close to here, whether it's one of our pastoral team. But these questions, these reflections, these things that they stir up are an important place to sit in.